Welcome back to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On this season of the show, we'll be exploring new work in press series like Transformations in Higher Education, Asian and African Studies, and Breakthroughs in Mimetic Theory. I'm also excited to talk to a handful of poets from our Wheelbarrow Book series in the coming months, and I hope you'll come along. On today's show, we're joined by Joseph Weber to discuss his book, Divided Loyalties, Young Somali Americans and the Lure of Extremism. Thanks for tuning in. In Divided Loyalties, Young Somali Americans and the Lure of Extremism, Joseph Weber examines the cases of more than 50 Somali Americans, mostly young men from Minnesota, who made their way to Somalia or Syria, attempted to get into those countries, aided people who did, or financially backed terrorist groups there. Throughout the book, Weber asks why people join violent extremist movements like al-Shabaab and al-Qaeda in the Islamic State, when so many of those who do end up dead, missing, or imprisoned. The book also considers those who rejected the temptations of terrorism with a close look at one man from Minneapolis, the American-born son of a couple who fled Somalia, who came dangerously close to answering the ISIS call. From 2014 to 2016, Abdirahman Abdirashid Bashir and a dozen friends, some still in their teens, schemed to find ways to join Bashir's other friends and cousins with ISIS in Syria. Some succeeded. In the end, Bashir made a different choice. Not only did he reject ISIS's call, he decided to work with the FBI to spy on his friends and ultimately to testify against them in court. Drawing on extensive research and interviews for divided loyalties, Joseph Weber explains why. I'm very excited to welcome Joe Weber to the podcast. He is the Jerry and Carla Hughes Professor of News Editorial and an Associate Professor of Journalism at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He worked for 35 years in daily and weekly journalism, including 22 years in several posts across North America for Business Week, departing as the magazine's chief of correspondence. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Kurt. I'm really interested to know how you came to this topic. What was it about extremist groups' efforts to recruit folks in the U.S., and particularly Somali people, that drew your attention? I have been fascinated for a long time about why it is that people join cults or groups that are outside the mainstream. What is it that brings people into these groups? My first book was a look at the Transcendental Meditation Movement, followers of the guru Maharshi Mahesh Yogi. And I've I've just been intrigued. What is it that causes somebody to depart from the mainstream of life and to affiliate with some cult or, or outside of the mainstream group? And in the case of ISIS, it was the most extreme, of course. This was a very, very malignant group, a very, very evil group, actually, a, a death cult. Most of the groups that I've looked at in the past have been much more benign. And, you know, they want to save the world, (laughs) and they have a body of beliefs along those lines. But ISIS, of course, was the opposite of that, quite the antithesis of that. So that was the general background. What is it that causes people to join these groups? It's a question that has concerned me for a while. And then it just happened to be a matter of timing. It was in that uh, mid-2014 to 16 period when this uh, group in Minneapolis was very much in the news. 
And so I was drawn to them. I was intrigued. It wasn't too far from, uh, from Nebraska. I could get up there and, and chat with people. I could go to the trials. I could talk to the attorneys, everybody. It was relatively close, and it was, it was an intriguing pursuit. I really want to ask in the next few minutes about the sort of relationship between the groups that you're describing, whether it's transcendental meditation or, or ISIS extremists. But I think we should start by thinking a little bit about the role of Somalia and Somali people here. I was born in Minnesota, and so I sort of have, I was born and raised in Minnesota, I should say, and I sort of had a front seat to that kind of cultural collision. I grew up in, in the South in the cities where a lot of Somali people were starting to settle. I ended up in St. Cloud, um, which had a rather large Somali population. You know, they had restaurants and they were attacked by white people at their restaurants. There was a, a knife attack at the mall in St. Cloud, uh, where I spent a lot of time perusing bookstores. I wonder if you could say a little bit about why the Somali population is, is the focus here and what does that situation look like for folks who may be less familiar? So Somalia was, and, and still is, a country in utter chaos. It has been for a couple of decades now. Um, and as a result of that, people have attempted to get out of Somalia and migrate to the U.S., migrate all over the world, really. And you can find Somalis all over the world, but a significant number of them moved to the U.S. They found communities, and this was back in the 90s, really, when it started, started uh, in earnest. They found substantial communities of relatives and friends and fellow Somalis in places like San Diego and Portland and, and Maine. So they found communities that they could affiliate with. And then there was a group of them that moved actually to Minnesota. And they came to Minnesota largely because of the meatpacking industry. You have to understand that Somalis, the Somalis of that period, were significantly undereducated for the most part. And they didn't even have really good English skills. So like, like a lot of eth other ethnic groups that are new to the U.S., they gravitated to jobs that they could do with their hands. And meatpacking was one of the ones, one of the uh, opportunities available to them in Minnesota. So there was a migration that began that way. Then people started migrating to Minneapolis. They started finding other ways to make a living, setting up restaurants, getting into the healthcare industry, which happens to be a big industry for a lot of Somalis. They tended to be in areas that didn't require a great deal of professional skill. They could, they could succeed and, and make a living for themselves with their hands. And so that became the case. We now see a movement now with the second and third generation of people into education. So there's a significant number of people that are involved in education right now. So they've accelerated the American dream, if you will, in the space of probably 20 years, most of them. Now, some of them, unfortunately, have felt rather alienated. You talked about the problems that, that happened in Minnesota with the knife attacks and that sort of thing. They have run into hostility in some of the communities that they have settled in. You know, different ethnic groups rub up against each other in different ways. Um, and, you know, in some parts of the country too, frankly, we have a substantial white supremacist movement, which is another cult, by the way. We have a substantial white supremacist movement that cannot abide the presence of these people. So it is challenging, of course, to be Somali. Poverty is endemic in the community. Uh, it's, it's really quite tragic, but they are, over time, I think, coming through that. At this particular point in time with the problems with ISIS and the problems earlier with al-Shabaab in Somalia, 
we see the move away from the uh, first generation aspirations in the U.S. to some sort of a retreat, you know, and that was part of the phenomenon. That's what attracted them. I wonder if we could think about that a little bit more. One of the things that I find fascinating about the movement that, that you describe is when folks start coming over, they continue to maintain relations with, with family and extended family and clan relations back in Somalia. How does how was what was going on in Somalia in this period continuing to affect communities here in the U.S.? Well, there were two waves, really, of uh, sort of radical affiliation. Back in the 2007 period, beginning in the period of 2007 and going probably up until about 2013, there was um, a considerable amount of interest in liberating Somalia. And there was a rise in Somalia of al-Shabaab. This was a, a, an Islamic movement that had some moderate elements, but ultimately became quite extreme. Al-Shabaab was rising. The feeling was that Al-Shabaab was going to liberate Somalia and, and bring it around into a, into a healthy state, a healthy Islamic state. So in that period, 2007 or so up till about 13, we saw substantial recruitment by Al-Shabaab in areas like Minneapolis. There were about 20 or so, 24, mostly young men who wound up getting uh, recruited to go to Somalia, join Al-Shabaab, and to fight for Al-Shabaab. Some of them came back, some of them were killed, some of them were imprisoned. But that was the first movement. And mind you, the people who were recruited into that, who, who joined that, tended to be either, they had immigrated here either as toddlers or young children, or they were first generation. For the most part, they, were, they came here as children. So they didn't feel a great deal of loyalty to the United States. They did feel a great deal of loyalty and cultural affiliation with Somalia. So they, they saw an opportunity, and it was very, very nationalistic in its, in its sentiment, probably more nationalistic than religious, in fact. But they saw a way to liberate their homeland. And it's frankly not very different from other movements we've seen in the United States in the past. You know, the Irish in the United States supported the IRA. Some of the Irish in the United States supported the IRA. Jews in the, in the United States in the 1940s and 50s supported Irgun and some of the terrorist groups in Israel. So this nationalistic affiliation, if you will, was really a big draw for that first group. And so that was, that was the first group. Now, that first group overlapped with the second group who sought to join ISIS instead of al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab was no longer the sort of sexy, shiny thing to get involved with. ISIS was. ISIS was going to clear the way for an Islamic revival, reconstruction, a rebirth of the caliphate, the historical destiny of Islam. So it was much sexier. It was much more appealing to this next wave of, of, of people. And by the way, many of these folks, and mostly guys, as they say, they tended to be in their teens or early 20s. And so they were very, very susceptible to the appeal of the heroic mission. And that's what they saw really in both cases. They thought they were going to be heroes. And, and they also they felt quite alienated still from American society. Don't underestimate that. They really felt like outsiders in the United States. They felt like outsiders within the black community. And this was a fascinating sort of subtext that I found in, the, in, the, uh, in doing the research. There's a distinction between African-Americans who have been in the United States for many, many generations, and then African-Americans who have come over here in very recent years. There's hostility 
oftentimes between those groups. There were fights in the high schools between those groups. They didn't really feel a great deal of kinship. So these young men, while outwardly, would look like African Americans. They liked Afri- they liked music. They they talked in jargon that was very similar to that of African Americans. But they also were Somalis, and they also were Americans. And the problem was they didn't really know who they were. You know, going through the teenage identity crises that are common to everybody, they had all this cultural overlay. And so these groups, these radical groups, were quite appealing to them. It's interesting that that you can see sort of written on the individuals that you're describing or the or the demographics, you know, teens, young adults, the sort of instability in Somalia's history sort of written onto their population. Because it's not as though, and as you said, Somalia has sort of been in chaos for a long time. It's been subject to colonialism from any number of Western nations, including the Italians and the United States, encouraging to try to set things straight or prop them up in some way or other. And, and as you point out, it's even unique among African countries in its sort of make up as a mostly Islamic region as opposed to, you know, some of the other regions that surround it. So there's this... Such as Ethiopia. Yeah, yeah which, is, which is a more um, Christian in its, dem- in its demographic. I think it's interesting to see how all of that stuff is sort of those international struggles, those religious struggles are coming together in these characters that you look at in the book. Could you tell us a little bit about how those extremist groups started to prey on those, you know, what, what those folks are experiencing as individuals to try to lure them, you know, back to Africa, into Syria and other places? Sure, absolutely. But let me, let me take something up that you touched on that I think is really rather profound. The traumas that the parents of some of these young men experienced in Somalia haunted them and shadowed their families. So some of these young men came from very broken homes in which their parents were either had mental illness issues or they still were reliving the horrors that they had experienced back in Somalia. It made for a very unstable family life for them. So I think that the terrible events of Somalia cast a very long shadow over these men. And I would not underestimate that. Now, if you grow up in that kind of environment, you're not sure who you are. You're not sure where you fit. You're not sure what opportunities you have in in, in American society. You, You are ambivalent about your feelings about American society. You're Islamic enough to feel like there's a lot of sin out there. And, and, and I would not underestimate that. They really felt a certain amount of appeal to Islamic purity. So you have groups like ISIS in particular that know about, they know how to reach these guys. They created propaganda videos that were just extraordinary, that played on the sense of victimization that these young men felt, particularly as Islamic youths. They looked at Syria which was an awful, awful place. I mean, Assad is a brutal and awful individual. His regime is monstrous and killed many, many children and families, etc. So they had wonderful tools at their disposal in terms of these propaganda videos for recruiting these young men in with this appeal to heroism. Come and fight people like Assad. Save Islamic children. Save Islamic women be a savior to your people. And on top of that, 
you will be part of this brotherhood. And they did refer to themselves as brothers. So you'll be part of this team, part of this brotherhood that is going to act heroically. And on top of that, if you die in this cause and you die heroically, you will be given great rewards in the afterlife and your parents will be given great rewards in the afterlife. This religious dimension is, is significant in the case of ISIS. I think it was less significant in the case of al-Shabaab. It was there, but it was definitely significant in the case of ISIS. So these guys saw themselves as they were told by these groups, particularly with these propaganda videos, and with re by recruiters. There were occasionally recruiters that were involved, usually in the first wave more than in the second, but there, were some, there was a lot of self-recruiting going on. They were going to live in an Islamic paradise in the new caliphate, and if they died, they would be guaranteed even better. So that was the appeal, and it was extremely seductive to these individuals. And the thing that fascinated me was, I don't understand how it is that they could ignore all of the media and all of the messages that the larger society was giving them. How is it that they could listen to these extremists and not to the truths that were taught by the rest of the rest of society? That was really interesting to me. Again, they inhabited a cocoon to a degree and self-reinforcing messages and extremely good propaganda. I wonder if we could pursue that a little bit further into like the mechanics of how did this actually happen. So you mentioned propaganda videos. You mentioned that in the early earlier movement, the Al-Shabaab recruitment, you know, you'd have some actual human beings recruiting you. You sometimes hear folks on the right panicking about like mosques and Islamic centers as hubs for doing this kind of training, but I've never put much stock into that. What did it look like mechanically for these young men? Where are they finding this stuff? And how, how are they you know, reinforcing these messages that you say are so counter to the rest of the narrative about ISIS and about you know, what's going on in the Middle East and et cetera? Well, in the case of the first group, they did come together uh, in one mosque in particular. The leaders of the mosque were not involved. The mosque was just a convenient place for religiously minded young men to gather, and a recruiter would see that and would basically coax them into a wanting to join al-Shabaab. That's what happened in the case of the first wave. So the, the mosque just happened to be a physical space. It was not itself, and the leadership certainly were, they, they were not involved in this recruitment effort. They were used by the recruiter. So that was in that first case. In the second case, most of the uh, recruitment, if you will, was described as self-recruitment. They encouraged one another, these young men. So I looked at particularly a group of 13 young men. Of the 13, we had the informant, Abdirahman. We had three individuals, well, nine individuals who wound up going to prison, ultimately. And then we had three who actually made it to Syria and uh, were killed there. Those three who made it to Syria did a lot of the recruiting efforts among the other 13. They were in touch with each other over the internet. They were chatting. They were describing the Islamic paradise that they were living in and sending back messages of, when are you going to join us? There were also some additional men who were related to uh, Abdi Rahman, for instance, in particular, cousins of his. And they were also on the internet, sending back messages of how wonderful it is and we need you here. You've got to join the brothers. So they had this personal touch 
in addition to this personal touch, they could go online and they could see these very well-made videos uh, that depicted the savagery of the Assad regime, all of which was legitimate, all of which was awful. I mean, it was real, and there was you can understand them reacting strongly to it. And they, they depicted the savagery of that, and they depicted the heroism of the, of the ISIS fighters. Those were seductive videos that they would watch for hours and hours and hours. And those kind of messages, plus literally just getting together around basketball courts. These guys were, 13 of them were basketball fiends. They were really, this was part of the curious sort of American, half-American assimilationism that they experienced. They loved basketball. And so they, you know, they, they play basketball and they would plot. They would figure out how they were going to get over there and do their part. And so it was a fascinating self-selection reinforced by the videos, reinforced by the messages of people who were there. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Joseph Weber, author of Divided Loyalties, Young Somali Americans and the Lure of Extremism. I'm happy that you mentioned their interest in basketball because it does clear up a question that I had about the cover of your book, which depicts a sort of uh, shadowy basketball court. And I thought, what is the exact connection there? But that makes good sense. You've mentioned a couple of times that the book in large part tells the story of Abdi Rahman. Could you say a little bit about his role in all of this? I mean, particularly, how did he start to get involved with ISIS recruitment and what, uh, what led to the, to the change in heart? From the time that he was 14, uh, Abdi Rahman was getting messages from radicalized relatives. There were older cousins of his uh, who had been involved with Al-Shabaab. And he was getting messages from them about the need to be more religiously observant, about the, the, the need to get involved with radical groups. So that started out at about age 14 when he was still in San Diego. His family then moved to Minneapolis. He continued some of his ties to some of these cousins, one of whom in particular he was very, very close to, who happened to be in Minnesota. Hanad, he was a little younger than him and went to school with him. And so he was getting these, and they, and they would watch these videos together. They would absorb these messages. You know, the war was really beginning to accelerate in Syria. ISIS was making great advances in this period, consolidating lots of land. There seemed to be, the, the wind seemed to be at the back of the, uh, of the radical Islamic movement. So he's getting all these messages. He's hanging out with these other dozen friends of his. They're all talking about this. Half of them went to a publicly funded, a public school that actually was exclusive, that served exclusively Somalis, the Heritage School in uh, Minnesota. So they were getting cultural reinforcement. They were also getting, you know, these political messages, etc. So he was getting all of these things. And he was um, plotting with them to try to join ISIS, with his friends, the 13, 13 and all, 12 and he. They were plotting and trying to figure out how they could, how they could get over there and do their part. So he's, he's doing that. He's an active participant in all of this. But the FBI has been on to these guys. Right? The FBI had a very uh, aggressive surveillance effort that was going on in Minneapolis at this time. It had begun back in the days of the Al-Shabaab recruitment, and it persisted into the, into the ISIS period. The FBI was getting on to them. It had been watching several of these guys in this group for, for years, actually, ever since the time they were young teens. And 
he was getting intelligence about these folks. The FBI started calling on some of these folks and having them come up and testify about what was going on to a grand jury. Abdi Rahman was one of the people who was summoned to testify before the grand jury. He was very, very conflicted about this. He was also very, very conflicted because he was talking to a father and an uncle who were really discouraging him from any of these radicalized beliefs. They may not have known about his interest in going to Somalia, but they knew about the radicalized beliefs. The father had basically banned his cousins from communicating with Abdi Rahman. They still did it, but the father had banned them from doing it because he didn't like any of this stuff. And then there was a key turning point. Several of Abdi Rahman's cousins were killed in a U.S. air attack in Syria. They were killed. Suddenly, it was very, very real to him. He actually went into a sort of a period of isolation away from his friends. It didn't last terribly long, but he was kind of staying away from them because he was trying to process the deaths of these people who were very close to him. You know, a lot of these guys were smitten with the idea of becoming martyrs, shahids. He was not. That really did not appeal to him. And when this happened to his relatives, and suddenly it was very, very real, he was susceptible to recruitment by the FBI. He then, he was called a couple of times to testify before a grand jury, and very frankly, he lied to the grand jury. He lied because he did not want to betray his friends. The FBI started talking to him, and they had a, a lot of leverage over him. The fact that he had been plotting Several of them had actually tried to get to Syria. They had taken bus trips to New York to try to get on planes, etc. So there was a lot of activity going on. They had leverage over him, and the leverage was, you've lied before the grand jury, that's a crime. If you're lying to the FBI, that's a crime. So he had that going on. That was sort of the negative thing, the club that they had. But he also had very positive reinforcement from the FBI people. The two FBI agents in particular who worked with him were really nice guys. I've met them, talked with them. One in particular, former army officer, he's like a high school counselor. And he, and he basically befriended them. They were talking to him, giving him positive messages. Mind you, he's like 19, 20 years old at this time. They're giving him positive messages. You know, he's, he also had been, interestingly enough, he had been majoring in law enforcement in college. He was interested in becoming a police officer. This was like the two roads that he was on. On, on the one road, he, he had this commitment to uh, Islamic radicalism. On the other road, he was interested in becoming a, a police officer in the United States. You know, again, it's a 19-year-old confusion of identity, right? Who are you? So he, he looked up to these guys. They could basically offer him a way out. And that way out was, you wear a wire. You gather evidence on your friends and their plotting. You agree to testify. You help us out. And we will see to it that you are okay. And so that's what happened. He wound up wearing a wire, spying, spying on them, and going one further substantial step. They created a, uh, an elaborate sting operation, which three of these guys would go to San Diego, and then they would move over into Mexico, then they would get on planes and wind up in the Middle East going to Syria. He went there with two guys, traveled cross-country with them. They got 
apprehended, of course, because it was a sting. The whole thing was set up by the FBI. They were apprehended. They wound up standing trial. They spirited Abdi Rahman off, and then it became apparent to everybody that he had he had turned against them. And he did wind up testifying against those two individuals, as well as another fellow who was back in Minneapolis and who was really kind of the ringleader, a fellow by the name of Guled. He had been the uh, charismatic center of this group for a while. So, you know, it's really interesting how much of this, we were talking earlier about how the socio-political, geopolitical struggles in Somalia are written onto Somali families and these individual young men. And then now we're thinking about how do we stop this sort of flow of extremists from the U.S. to Africa? And the solution is also interpersonal. You know, Abdi Rahman is developing relationships with these FBI officers. They're counting on him to you know, betray his friends and people that he's related to in an effort to try to slow or stem some of this from going on. Did the FBI have other sort of programs that you know of or make other kinds of attempts to slow down or to put the brakes on that kind of extremist movement? Oh, yeah. The FBI had a, uh, had a program which actually did not survive the Trump administration. And that program was to reach out to the Muslim community in Somalia and to basically encourage American assimilation, to help groups that were part of the Somali mainstream financially and so on, to get people involved in civic life. It wasn't a de-radicalization program per se, but it was kind of a, an assimilation program. And uh, there were several civic groups that, that were, and, and they still exist in, in Minneapolis, who really tried to promote the well-being of the community. So there was some funding that was directed at these groups by the Obama administration. When the Trump administration came into power, it turned this all around. It started giving money instead to law enforcement groups, figuring that, you know, they would be better served than to give these groups that were promoting welfare. It was really a problem. But the, the government was attempting to do this through the U.S. Attorney's Office in, uh, in Minneapolis. That basically was met with a mixed response in the Somali community. The Somali community did not like the idea that an arm of law enforcement, the U.S. Attorney's Office, was in charge of this funding program. So there was a real turn away from that. It was kind of unfortunate. But the Somali community was very uh, ambivalent about law enforcement going after some of the young men who sought to go overseas. There was a real mixed reaction. There were people in the Somali community who, who saw no alternative. There were others who thought that the, the men were being pursued unfairly and victimized. It's, it, was, it was a fascinating cultural phenomenon. A lot of it has to do with uh, insularity in ethnic groups and a, and a, and a mistrust of authorities. And I don't think it's too extreme to say that in the case of the Somalis, you know, they had a lot of good reason to mistrust governments. You know, their governments in Somalia certainly hadn't been on the side of the angels and um, had been awful to them. So, you know, this feeling of, of mistrust, this feeling of circling the wagons uh, around members of your community that are being prosecuted, uh, all of that kind of played into this. Well, and I mean, and just just to emphasize that, because I do think it's important to, that we like keep in mind how real these struggles really are for for the people who live them on the ground. Like, I there are very few populations in St. Cloud, Minnesota, that are treated with such outright open disdain 
as the Somali population, you know, that they built a restaurant right down the block from my house and somebody within weeks had knocked the windows out and spray painted the thing. Like there is genuine resentment of those two cultures coming together. So you could see how that would make the community more insular. There was a, uh, a firebombing attempt at a, at a mosque in the Minneapolis area as this was all going on. Happened to be three uh, white supremacists from Illinois, as I recall, came out and um, threw a, a firebomb into the, into the mosque. I don't think they did an enormous amount of damage, but they terrorized people. And those guys wound up going to jail. So, you know, it, 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 there's very real ethnic tension. And it's, uh, you know, it's tragic, but, you know, we see this sort of phenomenon, and I think it's terribly in the most unlikely places. I mean, who would have thought that George Floyd would have been killed the way he was in Minneapolis? I mean, I tend to have very positive feelings about Minneapolis, having spent a fair amount of time there. I think it's a very accommodating and welcoming place for the most part, but there is an underbelly. And there are people who just cannot abide newcomers. And they also are racist. And so... Well, and it's easy, it's easy to, to forget that that sort of liberal island of Minneapolis, St. Paul, the sort of south suburbs, is a node in a much more rural place that, that has all of the kind of you know, white hostility and white resentment that we associate with you know, the, the Trump supporters and the sort of white supremacist movements more broadly, and that that's been the case for a long time. Yeah, I do think that in many states you do have this uh, rural-urban split, and it's, you know, it's sad. I'm sure that there, there are sociologists who can tell us why this takes place. You know, my job here was to really just kind of recount the events and, and somehow try to understand them hostility that the Somalis feel is definitely real. You know, incidents have happened. And so, and the poverty is very real. And when they react by becoming much more religiously affiliated, or they see themselves as escaping all of that and going off and being heroes in a, in a land that they have no connection to, Syria, no connection, it becomes understandable. I wonder, Joe, if we could return to your sort of the, the opening salvo of our conversation and your kind of interest in, in extremist ideologies more broadly, you know, whether it's white supremacy or QAnon or any of these other kind of cult-like movements. Does, does the story of, of what happened to Abdirahman in the way that it you know, resembles so many stories of coming to and acculturating oneself to an extremist ideology, does it teach us anything about th that question that you had about how do we balance the sort of pull of these alternative you know, media organizations, internet groups, communities with the sort of mainstream narratives of you know, sense and reason, presumably. What do we make out of this, this one person story in that context? The challenge here is coming up with effective ways in our society of bringing people into the tent so that they don't go and look for other tents that are dangerous. And the traditional vehicle for this has been education. And I think that is still the most powerful tool that we have. So for instance, at the Heritage Academy, this all-Somali uh, public school, there are some who argue that it shouldn't exist at all, that, that basically public schools should be integrated and, and everybody should be forced to get along. 
in a melting pot way. There are others who say there's a value to individualized education much as there is to parochial schools. But let's say that we encourage the heritage academies of the world to exist. You get in there and you give them positive messages as well. One of the things that I, I, I heard, which is really quite profound, is why does the U.S. military not recruit at places like Heritage Academy? If these young men had been given messages from military recruiters for the U.S., perhaps they wouldn't have been as easily seduced by the recruiters for ISIS. Now, that's, of course, speculative, but the point is they lived in an isolated cocoon, and that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. What I did as part of this effort also was to talk to some folks who were at the University of Minnesota. Somalis, some of them were planning to be doctors, some of them were planning to be lawyers, they were planning to be advocates for their community, etc. And there was some degree of, you know, support and sympathy for radical groups, but nothing like this. There was skepticism about law enforcement, but nothing like this. The folks who were at the University of Minnesota were going to make their way in American society. And I think that's really all we can do, is we can look at our educational system, K-12, to and we can say, are we giving them proper messages? And if we are not giving them proper messages, what are the messages we need to give them through civics education and so on? I also think that the mosques can be very helpful in this regard. I think that if the leadership of the mosques really works on delivering positive messages about American society and is attentive to radicalism, then a lot of this can be forestalled, can be stopped. But it's a challenge. It is really a challenge. I don't know that we've found a solution. Now, in the short run, you know, ISIS has been stymied. It's not been killed. It's not been eliminated. But the caliphate has been destroyed and dismantled. ISIS is still active. Al-Shabaab is very active. These groups are not going to go away. And their messaging is not going to go away. So we, we have to be attentive to this in our educational system and in the mosques to stop it. I think those points about education are really important. And, and there's so much more to this story that's, that's available in the book. And I think we're just about out of time. So before we take off, I wanted to say thank you so much, Joseph Weber, for joining us today. I've learned a lot from your book, and, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Great pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it, Kurt. Joseph Weber's book, Divided Loyalties, Young Somali Americans and the Lure of Extremism, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the MSU Press team for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Adawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.